Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will give you the insights and techniques you need to take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive in. Today's guest is one of my favorite people in the world, an amazing human being, Casper Terkyle. He's the author of The Power of Ritual, a Harvard Divinity School fellow. Uh, he's a host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and he's the co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab. Casper's been studying religion and how it's evolving for a long time. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into religious rituals and how echoes of those rituals can be seen everywhere today from our fitness communities to our workplaces and businesses to our families. We talk all about what community builders can learn from traditional religion and how you can identify rituals that you can bring into your own spaces to bring more meaning and purpose uh, into your own community. I'm really excited for this chat. Casper is a longtime friend and it's it's always a delight to talk to him. I know you're all going to love it. Let's dive into today's episode. We've had these conversations many, many times <laughs> over the course of the last several years, and now we finally get to record one. Yeah. I feel like you used to be my long-haired, like, long-lost brother, but now, <laughs> you know, maybe it's long-bearded. I don't know. <laughs> now I'm your short-haired, long-lost brother. Still your long-lost brother, though. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to chat. Um, I've been reading everything you've created for many years now, from how we gather. Um, I'm very excited for your new book, which we're going to get into. Um, You're working on some of the most interesting stuff today when it comes to community, Mm. because you're doing something that the majority of people who are working in community aren't doing. You're connecting the past, you know, our more traditional forms of community with, with the modern day forms of community and seeing how it's changing and evolving, whereas a lot of people today... Uh, they're just looking at, you know, virtual community and just how mm. we're connecting today without really understanding uh, where we came from. And so very excited to just kind of dig into that and help the the CMX community and everyone listening here to to understand uh, where we came from when it comes mm. when it comes to community and how it can help them in their work building community today. Definitely. Yeah, I, I'm endlessly fascinated by how kind of ancient rituals, ancient community practices translate um, and how they show up sometimes unwittingly. Um, you know, the, the echoes of of old practices uh, uh, kind of find new form without people necessarily recognizing them. But I, I think there's real value in kind of digging into that history because we learn how to do it well. You know, we can, we can learn from those traditions and, and uh, you know, every tradition was once an innovation. So we, we, we get to keep playing with them. It's not something static that's just there forever, right? There's There's always creativity embedded uh but there's this value there to learn from mm. and, and so and your book is uh coming out june june 23rd mm. it's called the power of ritual turning everyday activities into soulful practices are we lacking soul today <laughs> well that's a great question i i think we lack language and i think we lack structure I think we're as soulful as ever, but maybe it doesn't have as much shape, uh, certainly not in public life. Um, you know, the, the the orientation of our work at Sacred Design Lab, even from from how we gather and definitely in this book, um, is to start with the the assumption and, and the realization that 
listen, people have already got all sorts of ways in which we make meaning, in which we find community, uh, in, in which we have rituals, um, but we don't necessarily pay attention to them or give them the kind of structure that they need to really flourish. Um, so w- what I do in the book is to think about the way we experience connection across four different levels, uh, thinking about connection to ourselves, connection with other people, connection with the natural world, and then connection to transcendence or something that feels bigger than us, uh, of which we're a part. Um, and, and in each chapter, I look at how are people doing that, right? Whether it's through fitness communities, grieving communities, uh, online communities, all sorts of different communities, but to trace the way in which those communities connect with one another to a traditional religious practice, something like pilgrimage, something like uh, um, like community dinners, right? Uh, uh, the way in which food has been ritualized. And even thinking about, uh, in the last chapter, thinking about how we can learn from prayer, which sounds a little bit, you know, strange and scary, but actually there's principles there that really, really translate very well. Um, so it's about translating those ancient practices into a contemporary context. So if you look at those four levels, we, we certainly seem to be struggling on on to some degree with each one, yeah. our connection to ourselves, connection to others, connection to nature, definitely struggling with that yeah, one. Totally. Um, but transcendence specifically seems like one that is kind of just disappearing, mm. right? Like you can, you can work today on connecting to yourself better through meditation, through right. um, self-improvement. You can connect with others through technology or just being intentional about spending time with your friends and family. Mm-hmm. You can connect with nature by finding nature, getting out there, making it a habit, but connecting to, yeah. you know, this higher power, mm. um, that, that seems to be lacking today. And, and, and you can speak to this much better than me, but there's a ton of data around yeah. how religion's on the decline. It's really a huge moment in, in, in American religious history. I mean, you used to, 50 years ago even, you used to be able to assume that everyone would fit into a kind of box, right? You're Presbyterian, you're Jewish, you're this, you're that. More and more now, especially younger people, 40% of millennials describe themselves as nothing in particular. And that number looks to be set even higher for Gen Z, nearly up to 50% probably. Um, and, and that's a sea change in how people describe themselves and affiliate to institutions. But here's the really interesting thing. Even within that 40% number, the data tells us that one in five people who are unaffiliated religiously still prays every day, and two in three still believe in some sort of higher power. So it's not to say that we're becoming less religious per se. Certainly our attendance and our affiliation is going down. But the, the questions that we have, the meaning and the purpose and the connection that we're all looking for are ever-present. Um, and so there's a real kind of mismatch right now between institutions that have stewarded these religious traditions and the communities uh, that lived them and us as individuals and where we're going to find meaning. Um, so at the same time, you're seeing a decrease in, in religious institutional activity. You're seeing a massive increase in things like astrology apps, right, or in um you know, gratitude journals or um, silent reflection hikes, right? Like there's all of these examples of still kind 
kind of pathways that we're finding that maybe express a different way of doing it, but they're still speaking to that kind of eternal longing that we have. Um, and I grew up non-religious and, and, and as a gay guy, I was always very, you know, I'd be very skeptical about religion because it's done so much damage. You know, it, it, it is a force. It can be for good, but can also be really, really negative. Um, and so I, you know, when I ended up in divinity school, I was, I was kind of surprised by it, uh, that, that I'd ended up there, but it, I think it's an invitation to creativity right now. Like this moment, culturally, there's this growing chasm between the places that have traditionally served our our, our meaning making and well being and community needs, and the new kind of areas, the new landscape that's emerging uh, of organizations and products that are helping us do that. So it sounds like it's essentially separating religion as an institution from religion as a belief or value system. And you're saying the belief and value system is kind of, it's as strong as ever. It's the institution and the connection to the institution that's on the decline. I think you're exactly right to point to that difference. The way the way I would phrase it, uh, with institutions on the one hand, not necessarily saying that they're bad or anything, but that they're just they're just struggling. But on the the other hand, you know, we all often think that religion equals belief, right? The classic American example of like, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? Like that that's the marker of of someone who's religious. But it's a really limited understanding of religion, sociologically speaking. When you look at religious activity across the globe, and you look beyond Protestantism beyond Christianity, you actually start to see that what marks religiousness is about behavior, not about belief. So it's about participating in rituals. It's about belonging to a community. I mean, if you think about a Jewish context, even here in the US, right, there's plenty of people who say, oh, I'm not religious, but I am Jewish, right? So in, in, That's in that me. context- That's right, what that, I say. Right. So like, what is it about the Jewishness that you connect with? Like, what, what is it? It's the tradition. I feel connected to my family. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a communal aspect to it. When I meet other Jews, I feel a sense of connection right. and camaraderie and shared history there. And, and, you know, I live far away from my family as well. So, you know, it, it to me is a way of feeling connected to my family Beautiful. by carrying on the traditions that, that I was brought up with. And, and those traditions are probably things like Maybe a Seder, like maybe Seder. I throw right? a mean Seder. Throw, I, I, I know, I knew it, right? Like, and and I mean, a Seder is nothing but a ritualized meal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a, it's a way of getting together and having Seder. Literally means order. It's, it's a way of, um, you know, sitting around a table, sharing this tradition together. And so, a Seder is a beautiful example of a practice, right? Like mm -hmm. a, a ritual behavior that still marks us out in some way, right? It connects mm -hmm. us to that history, as you said. It connects us to story. It connects us to peoplehood, lineage, um, even without believing necessarily. It in, you know, like a daddy in the sky who's telling us that we're good or bad, right? <laughs> which which in itself is a gross misrepresentation of what God truly is. But 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 the broader point is, you know, and this for me was such a joy to realize that, you know, it, it actually I'm less interested in what you believe and I'm more interested in how you behave. You know, how do you live your life? What do you practice? Because it's it's in those practices, I think, that we really reveal who we are, right? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? How do you treat people? Um, th those, are, those are the things that really mark out, I think, a life well lived. Um, and so for me, what was what was exciting to think about in, in really trying to resh reshape how we think about what religion is, is to move us away from this very limited constriction of, 
you know, it's just about, do you believe in life after death or something? And, and actually it's about how are you going to order your life? How are you going to structure your life? So are there elements of religion that we do miss when we cut out those institutions, right? Because like yeah. a ritual of walking in the park and being reflective, mm-hmm. sure, that that's meaningful. <laughs> and going to those four levels again, like, yeah, it's, yeah. I'm connecting with myself, um, connecting with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these are certainly valuable rituals, but it seems like the there's something about religion having these you know, old, old stories and old, yeah. old books that go back way before our brain can even wrap our heads around that make it feel more spiritual or mm-hmm. um, more meaningful mm. that we lose when we kind of cut out those elements of religion and just focus on yeah. the the kind of first principles of ritual. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And 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 some of the things that we start to see I mean, again, like take a sacred text, right? That's a great example. Like reading these old stories, thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the way in which people engage with with the, the Torah or with the Bible, or with the Quran. Those stories don't change. And yet they're always new every time we hear them, if we're telling them right, right? If we're, if we're doing it right. Um, because they offer a sort of mirror to who we are. So let's take the Seder again, right? We, we tell the Passover story. We tell the story of how the people of Israel escaped from Egypt um, and, and uh, you know, escaped from Pharaoh. And you can read that literally, right? There's a story about people and they're running away and they, you know, they, they, they escaped plagues, from the, the blah, plague. Plagues, blah, blah, blah. Right, the ten plagues, right? All, all of the, the firstborn. Right, right. Some heavy stuff in that. Um, so, <laughs> it's you know, it's, it, it's, it's a good story on, on the surface of it. But what makes a what makes a sacred text in my view is when we come back to it when a community basically says we will treat this story as sacred not because we want to just hear the story of the adventure every time but because we think there's something for us to learn in it about our own lives right so that we bring our own story to the mirror of this text and therefore by doing that understand our own story differently mm. so a, a classic question that you might ask you know uh, during a seder meal is like well what is Pharaoh in your life right now, right? What what do you feel enslaved by? Um, now you know that that might have been your feudal overlord, right? Uh, and right well, now we it are, might be... we are literally living in a plague right now. <laughs> we so are literally it's... living in a plague, right? Like it's a beautiful kind of allegorical image in which we get to reinterpret our own experience. And because our lives are always changing, the story always feels fresh because we're always bringing new experiences to the text. So. You can do that with any text, right? And I have a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we do those kind of uh, those sacred readings with a very modern classic. It's only 20 years old. Um, and, and that feels awesome. And for a lot of people, it feels really great. But you're absolutely right. You miss the kind of thousands of years of other people doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you get when you, when you engage with a religious tradition is it's not just your conversation with the text. You're stepping into a river of conversation that goes mm-hmm. back generations to generations to generations. And so there's just much more, um, much more commentary that you get to engage with and, and you get to enjoy. So that, that, mm. that's one thing I think we definitely miss when we, when we kind of completely reject these traditions. Um, mm. the, the other thing, just in a very contemporary context that we miss 
without kind of an institutional or a congregational home is we're much less likely to uh, behave pro-socially, by which I mean volunteer, donate, uh, donate money, uh, to, to behave in ways in which we're not just centering our own needs and wants, but we're thinking of a broader community. Um, and I think, you know, and we kind of characterize those reflective walks on your own in the park as, you know, something that's nice, but like not really important. The point of these practices, if they're done well, is that they recontextualize our experience from just being about me, me, me <laughs> to, to, to helping us see a bigger picture. Um, Howard Thurman is a wonderful African-American theologian of the 20th century, talked about Prayer doesn't necessarily change things about the rest of the world, but it changes how I understand the rest of the world's needs and my responsibility to those needs. That, that, that sense that if I engage in a practice, if I engage in a ritual, it, sh it should help me open my eyes and see the world differently so that I will behave differently. Um, so, and, and congregations, just in terms of the data, if you're part of a congregation, you're more likely to don donate your time, you're more likely to donate, donate your money. So I think as we think about these kind of personal rituals, that's a that not, that's, that's not just because of Jewish guilt. <laughs> or Catholic guilt. Oh, guilt comes in every flavor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's no, but that's a real good point, right? That there, there was, there were social expectations. Like if mm -hmm. you didn't show up, that totally. meant that you were untrustworthy, right? Absolutely. Now we're more likely to see that kind of like public shaming at a November project website, where if you said you're going to come work out on a Tuesday morning and you don't show up, they post a picture of your face online. <laughs> right? oh. That doesn't happen so much anymore in congregations. And it's probably one of the reasons why they're struggling um, is that there isn't that same kind of accountability that's really, mm. really strong within these traditions when they're at their best. Why? Well, it's so interesting. It's like throughout all of human history, there's been this like deep investment in religion. Mm. Um, and like when someone didn't like a religion, they just, you know, spun off their own when it would be called a cult until it turned into a religion or whatever. <laughs> right. um, and so I just watched the Waco series on Netflix the oh, other day. So yeah. top of mind, you, you watch that yet? Not yet. It's on my list. Uh, it's right up your alley. You'll, you'll <laughs> enjoy it. And, and just seeing, you know, it's, it's a cult and like all the kids were raised with it. So it's, yeah. it's what, it's all they knew their whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, is it that like, cause also the, the kind of family unit is also in decline right now, right? Like people right. are moving farther away from their families. They're living at home less. Is that tied to it? Is it because we are more, at least in Western society, I'm definitely contextualizing it for Western society, and that's not true for right, uh, right. other cultures today. But in Western society, um, is it because we're more distant from our families that that pressure to also conform to religious norms is not as strong as it used to be? Well, this is a $64,000 question, right? Like, wh why have we seen the decline of religion, especially over the last 50 years? There's a number of factors that sociologists point to. One of the really important ones that is easy to forget, which is just an economic one, is the development of the the two household, the two person income within a household. Um, so especially women entering the workforce uh, just depleted the free labor that congregations depended on to be really healthy massively. Um, so suddenly you just have less woman power uh, uh, kind of supporting these institutions. That, that's a really important one. Another one that was especially important for the the, the 
decrease in affiliation or how we describe ourselves was the real politicization of the 1990s, especially of the kind of Christian right. So the moral majority, a focus on the family, these institutions that were mobilizing religious communities around specific political goals. Um, and, and with that came a real um, exclusion of, uh, of women uh, and of, of gay people, of course, um, and a real sense that to be religious meant being nasty and homophobic and all sorts of other things, which which just made it a much less uh, much less attractive um, kind of language or identity for, for people to carry, mm-hmm. um, especially progressives. So you see real difference in terms of rates of affiliation for for Republicans and Democrats, for example. So th- those are really important ones. But I think you know the rise of the internet is another massive driver um, because it's shifted how we understand knowledge and even community life to happen from a top-down kind of authority structure to one which is much more networked and um, perhaps even kind of collegial. Um, So the same is happening in terms of, uh, you could even say sort of a spiritual democratization, Um, the sense that we don't look to authority figures with the same trust around questions of ethics and morality. Certainly not if they oversee an institution which is guilty of rampant sexual abuse, right? As with the Catholic Church. So Mm. so when people are no longer a trustworthy authority figure, and yet they're still imposing all sorts of uh, of rules upon us, yeah, of course we're going to say screw you, right? Mm. And and as we're now sharing information, communicating, um, you know, building all sorts of lives uh, around tools that the internet has provided... I think we're starting to see the same thing in how we how we imagine ourselves um, to live ethically and, and and spiritually. To give you a concrete example, um, think about the newspaper as a kind of classic product uh, of, of the of the twentieth century. You know, it held up all sorts of bundled goods. Right, you had your you had your, obviously your news, your sports results, you had classifieds, you had uh, uh, romantic ads, you had a crossword puzzle for the commute. All of those things were bundled together in one offering. Today, there's apps for each of those things that does the individual task better than any sort of you know, printed newspaper can. And so the newspaper has to has to find a new value that it's giving. I think congregations are in the same place, right? It used to give hmm. you uh, a worship experience once a week, maybe textual study, uh, a kind of you know, Sunday school for the kids. Maybe there was also volunteering that you could do through your church, all, all sorts of things. And going Friends, back even for family, social, social activities, you absolutely. did everything. Going, going back even further, if you think about, you know, different Catholic parishes were either the Irish parish, the Polish parish, right the mm-hmm. german parish you'd have even languages spoken uh, and and kind of ethnic cultural traditions that were kept alive in those places today you're able to find each of those things in different places without having to have it all bundled in the same way mm-hmm. and so i think that, that kind of internet culture of unbundling is happening in our meaning making social spiritual lives in the same way which allows us to lean into individual choice like never before which is wonderful but it comes with the cost that everything that we choose, we're not sharing it with the same other people, right? And mm. so we have that experience of being being disconnected or somehow isolated um, in, in ways that you know are reflected in the massive rise of, of loneliness and social isolation that we're seeing at the moment. So th- that that kind of dec- the the decline of the congregation allows for more freedom and more choice, but is also leaving us uh, socially disconnected in ways that that are really challenging. I think about this topic literally every day for like the last 10 years. And, and you just put it very succinctly in a way that I hadn't quite heard before. That is a fascinating way of understanding how social dynamics have changed and loneliness mm. is 
is increasing. This is the design question. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm just like obsessed with this question because you're clearly not going to get everyone back into a traditional congregation, right? Like a lot of churches are like, how do we get the young people? And it's like, dude, That's we're right. not even young anymore, right? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like that boat has sailed. You missed, so, you missed our, our window uh, here. hundred percent. Get on TikTok. That's how. <laughs> So this is then the question, which is like, it's not about just putting everything into the same place. But I think that the major community win, whoever gets to figure this out is going to become a mm. multimillionaire. But what is the sort of rebundling technology, rebundling platform, something that still allows me to be part of my running club to get my sense of connection with others, part of my, you know, daily gratitude, uh, uh, you know, journaling uh, practice, uh, and part of my, you know, three times a year going back to see my family and celebrating the High Holy Days and Passover, whatever it is. Uh, like, what is the thing that's going to hold all of that together in some way that makes it feel coherent? And ideally, shared with at least a handful of other people yeah i mean i feel like people are they'll 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 look for anywhere where they can find some meaning and spirituality Mm. today um we're hungry for it people seem really hungry for it and and there just aren't as many options necessarily uh for them to find it um and so you you mentioned a couple examples november projects um a, a few other kind of what you would call modern day versions of religion or ritual or spiritual spirituality. So what are you seeing today? Where are people finding the things that have been unbundled from religion? Where are they finding that today? Some of the, some of the communities were really surprising to us. Um, I mean, one online community that that's of course famous is patients like me, um, Mm, where people who have, you know, chronic diseases or, um, who are dying even, uh, get together, not just to, to, to be together, but to share data from their experience of the disease to, to help researchers make progress. Um, in uh, in finding cures and and one of the reasons why i love this example so much is yes there's the kind of the the, the obvious way in which you're contributing to something bigger than yourself by by tracking this data and uh, and sharing that with the community but it's it's one of the times in our culture when we're confronted with questions of ultimate meaning and and what bigger threat is there than than being you know close up to to suffering um you know recovery communities talk about encountering rock bottom, right? That moment when you can't pretend that everything is okay anymore and that you you need help. You need you need something from outside of you to help you. And that, that, that might be a friend, it might be a loved one, it might be might be spirituality. Um, and so I think in patients like me, what's amazing is the kind of, the way in which people have different kind of conversations because of their shared suffering or their shared experience. Uh, and so they're, they're inevitably oriented much more around meaning making. Um, so that's that's one online example which has been interesting. Uh, I mean, the classic case that I always end up end up talking about because it's so blatantly religious is CrossFit. Um, and fitness communities in general are, are are very 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 good examples of mirroring religious traditions. Um, we looked at Tough Mudder, we've looked at Spartan Race, we've looked at Soul Cycle, and, and many others. But but CrossFit has this evangelical culture that immediately means that you know. We always like to say, how do you know someone went to Harvard, is vegan, or does CrossFit? They'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Like this, that it's really built into the mentality 
cheap because for people who do CrossFit, uh, by and large, it's not just you're doing it to be healthy, um, but there's a sense of like it's life changing power, right? That the way you show up in the gym is sort of a training ground for how you will show up in life, um, mm. that it has a sort of ethical formation element to it. Um, that be they talk. Folks in, in the CrossFit community often talk about the zombie apocalypse that's coming and they're joking, but they're kind of like not joking, right? Like there's a sense of we will be the ones who survive. Um, so, th- so there is a sense of like preparing for the end times uh, that's baked into a, a sort of CrossFit theology. That's um, pretty religious. Absolutely. Um, And then, of course, anchor in the fact that a lot of people have specialized diets, which they share, as well as all of the the social elements of, you know, getting together on Friday night for drinks, mums and babies, workout classes. You know, we've heard so many instances of people, um, you know, having their, their, their shiver in a CrossFit box, getting married in the box. Uh, uh, people doing talent nights, like all those things that you would expect to see in congregational life happening inside CrossFit gyms. Um, Hmm. And so one of the key arguments that I try and make in the book is to say, you know, religion isn't disappearing. Where it's happening is just changing. And so when when you start to look at the world through those kind of lenses, you, you see it everywhere. I mean, during COVID in the first couple of weeks, I don't know how many emails you got from CEOs, maybe including from your CEO, but basically not just saying like, you know, we're still in business here is our product, but it reminded me of what a Catholic bishop writes in a moment of crisis, right? This sense of a pastoral letter of, of trying to give some shape and purpose and meaning to what's happening around us. Mm. And so it's not that those letters have disappeared. It's just now CEOs rather than bishops who are writing them. What's up, everyone? Just want to take a quick second to let you know about the launch of CMX Academy, our brand new training platform built to help you develop the knowledge and skills you need to take your community strategy to the next level. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you've enjoyed all these interviews, you're going to love the courses because they go much deeper into the topics we discuss here. We talk about community engagement, scaling your community programs, and how to identify objectives and metrics for how community impacts your business. All of our courses are on demand, so you can take them anytime at your own pace. And all of the lessons come with worksheets and activities, so you can apply the lessons to your actual community. And after completing each course, you'll receive a certification to add to your resume and your LinkedIn profile to show that you've completed the program. We're offering an exclusive discount on all of our courses just for podcast listeners. Go to cmxhub.com academy and use the discount code podcast to get 20% off all the courses. Again, cmxhub.com slash academy, enter the code podcast. There's a line of conversation we could have. I mean, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're not wrong in, in CEOs and business leaders almost seeing themselves in right. that kind of religious leadership kind of role. Yeah, they have a flock that they, you know, they feel responsible for. They they might call it that. Would would <laughs> would their quote unquote flock call it that? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> um, are people bought into uh, that that truth, or did they just get that email that went into their spam and they didn't read it? Um, so I mean, and, and you've looked at businesses, right? And, and look, like this is this is my world. I, I I work with businesses to teach them how to build community. Right. I believe that businesses can build authentic, real communities, and that's that's. The the key word, right? Like the authenticity, because there, there are, there are communities or there are businesses where 
I know that this is not just a flash in the pan email that's coming out of nowhere, right? This is a, a long lasting commitment of a prioritizing of putting a community at the center of the business. That's very, very different than, you know, some airline executive saying, dear friend. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you, you screwed me I your friend, like, friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are there good examples that come to mind that, you know, of uh, businesses that have been able to authentically provide some of that value that people are seeking in in place of religion? That's a great question. Uh, yes, yes, and. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think more and more people are, more and more business leaders are being confronted by the fact that especially younger employees are showing up to work expecting to find not just an income, but a sense of community and connection and a sense of purpose. Um, and so, you know, anyone who's smart thinking about the future, future staffing, you know, employee strategy uh, is starting to think about that. We've been doing some work with Pinterest, uh, with my colleagues at Sacred Design Lab, um, thinking about the architecture of their new headquarters. What are the physical spaces uh, that a future office building is going to need to help people make meaning and build authentic relationships? So we've started to think, you know, beyond just a, uh, you know, a, a, a small quiet room on every floor, could we start to think about having a specific sanctuary space or a place of beauty? Um, maybe that's filled with with greenery where people can go to to kind of recenter after a stressful meeting where 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 it's intentionally nearly devotional, right? Like a, a sense of reconnecting with inspiration, reconnecting with with why you're here. Um, and I, I fully expect to see more and more of those spaces start to enter uh, the, the 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 kind of the professional space, especially after our COVID experience, where this division be between the personal and the professional is completely broken down. I mean, we're seeing everyone in their you know bedroom, <laughs> you know, like the, there's no pretending anymore, right? As the CEO, I may or may not be recording this podcast from my bedroom, and you may or may not be seeing my bed right now. I, I the only reason you can't see my bed is because I've got a recording screen between that. <laughs> I was but, just talking about this with uh, Anil Dash. He's speaking at our events. Oh, great. And, um, and we were saying how it's been like it's leveled the playing field Absolutely. a lot. There's, no, there's much less status when, you know, you talk to a big time executive and their kids right. are poking them in the head during the call. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and in one of the, in some ways, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, Parker mm. Palmer, who's a wonderful uh, activist and, and, and Quaker writer talks about rejoining role and soul. That, mm. that that is a path towards kind of a healthy life when when we don't differentiate so much our inner and our outer lives that they that they are congruent with one another um and i think businesses that that help people do that are going to be are going to be in a really good place um because it's unsustainable not to i mean it's it's an interesting going back to what you described as the unbundling of religion and religion was this singular place where people got a whole lot of things yes they got social connection. They got a sense of purpose. They got social activities. They got family. Yes. Um, even, you know, security. Um, Absolutely. Uh, all these things. You can make the argument that today, again, Absolutely. Western society, the, the office, your job, your work has become the biggest bundle of those kinds of things that we have where we're getting security. We have friends from work. We spend that's right. 60, 70% of our time uh, working together in an office or remotely. 
Um, we get our sense of purpose from our work. We get our mm-hmm. sense of identity from our work. We have rituals. We have mm-hmm. logos that we wear. We have mm-hmm. language. We have symbols. All these things That's right. you could argue are just now bundled up more in our work than in anything else. Yeah, this this is where I just get so interested because on the one hand, you know, I I feel great. Like we're, we're looking for these things. If the workplace is one that can provide it, fantastic. And it comes with all sorts of major ethical questions. Like what if the person who is in charge of your like moral spiritual life is also your boss and is in charge of you meeting your deadlines, right? Like that is a serious conflict of interest and, and has a potential for real harm to be done. So one of the ideas that I've, I'm, I'm tracking and, and I'm starting to see happen now is just like employers currently, for many people, mediate healthcare, right? The company itself doesn't provide healthcare, but you get access to healthcare through your employer. I think we will start to see sort of employee assistance programs offer more and more community-oriented programming and perhaps even spiritual things uh, beyond just mindfulness, but perhaps, you know, joining singing groups, joining meaningful travel pilgrimage opportunities. Like who knows what else will come? I'm already starting to see small groups being offered through a company uh, um, you know, that you get access to, to a small group of encouragement, support and accountability with other, uh, people who are, you know, in a similar life stage, for example. So I I think you're absolutely right to point to that, to that mirror and that opportunity. And also, you know, that, 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 uh, the potential danger if it's done badly. Mm, Totally. Uh, Were you, were you referring to the grand at all? Is that what you're talking about? No, no. That that came to mind for me as a really good example of, um, they, they connect, uh, generally, it's millennials or, or younger groups of people who have a common, you know, life challenge or life topic yeah. they want to discuss. And they bring in an elder, uh, someone from an older generation um, who's been through that experience. So, you know, my wife and I just went to one. It was a discussion on co-parenting while mm. balancing your career. Beautiful. And so my wife's a middle school math teacher. I'm working in tech and community. And so we both work a lot. We're having our first kid soon. And so, uh, you know, there is, you know, again, like something that you used to be able to go to religion for and maybe find answers and community there. There really isn't anywhere for young people today to say like, I'm going through this big life change. Who can I talk to? And, And who are the elders that I can speak to? Right. And, and I think that the second ingredient is like, where can I go? But then also who do I trust? And I think this is one of the biggest challenges because there are wonderful programs, right, within within synagogues and churches and all sorts of, you know, there's great people there. But but there's such a perception challenge now where it's like, well, who do I trust to shape mm-hmm. me? Right. Like whose advice do I really trust on that question? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what the grand does so well, like as a trusted intermediary. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of the one of the many uh, uh, new organizations that, that, that that's fulfilling that role beautifully. And, and I'm so excited about what they're doing. Yeah, me too. Um, awesome. Well, uh, sh- shifting gears a little bit, I want to get into kind of what your your advice is in your book and, and how you how, how we can practically start hmm. to build more ritual into our lives. And as community builders, yeah. uh, how do we build those kinds of rituals and this kind of value into the communities that we're building, whether it is for uh, a business or um, an, any sort of organization? Yeah. Um, so, well, the, so what are the key things that you recommend in the book uh, for for finding those rituals or developing those meaningful rituals into your life? 
Yeah. So the first thing, you know, the, the whole approach of the book isn't to say, start all of these new rituals, right? Like st- buy all this stuff, start all these new things, add it to your to-do list. I'm really interested in helping people kind of maybe formalize and, and deepen the things that they're, that they're already doing, because I, I think the seeds are already, already in place. The things that make a ritual for me are to think about three things, intention, attention, and repetition. So what differentiates a ritual from a daily habit, just something like brushing our teeth or, you know, hopefully getting dressed in the morning, um, especially now and not just sweatpants, um, is, is to think about, you know, what's the intention that I want from this practice? Like maybe I want to feel connected uh, to, to the people I'm eating with. Maybe it's I, I want to feel grateful. Maybe it's I want to feel joy or I want to feel healing. Um, and so to kind of bring that consciously to, to the practice Secondly, to pay attention during it. So if you're taking the dog out for a walk and you want to feel, um, you know, connected to your mom, even though she's really far away, instead of listening to a podcast or, uh, you know, scrolling randomly uh, on your phone, try and, you know, relive three beloved memories with you and your mom um, on that walk with the dog. Right. So you're, you're really present while while you're doing the practice. And then repetition is simply repeating things over time. You know, some rituals are going to be daily. Some are going to be every week. Like uh, I do a tech Sabbath, right? Turning off my phone and, and, and laptop on a Friday night. Some things only come around once a year. Um, but having that kind of repeated cycle um, just gives just gives each time you do it like a new layer of meaning, like you're painting it every time with a new coat of paint. And that accretes meaning, just like what we talked about with, with the tech study uh, as it goes back over thousands of years. So the idea is you kind of like audit the things you're already doing, look for opportunities to make them more meaningful. Is exactly. that kind of it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and you'll be surprised, I think, sometimes about what, what rituals show up. Um, it might be that you're like, wow, gosh, I hadn't thought about it this way. But actually, um, you know, the, the, the time that I snuggle my kids before bedtime is really the moment which which I want to ritualize, right? I, w- I want to think of that as a spiritual practice. I want to think of that as a ritual. Um, and then to think about all the, you know, fabulous histories of bodily practices that we can learn from, right? Making things multisensory. How can, how can snuggle time become even more lovely if we um, added an element of, um, you know, song or add an element of, uh, of smell? Like th- th- there's ways in which you can uh, ritualize and enhance things that you're already doing that, that might surprise you. So what does that mean? So how, how do I, how do I, I, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding. So yeah. if, if I'm putting my, my kid to bed, um, yeah. like why, why am I thinking, uh, oh, I, I should sing now. Um, like, yeah. especially if these are things like when you, even when you said like, if you, you know, hold each other's hands and yeah. say, I'm glad to be with you when you sit yeah. down to eat, like, honestly, like the first thing that came in my head is that would be super <laughs> weird if I did that. My wife might. <laughs> literally punch me in the face. Um, so like where, where, where is that? I guess like, how do you figure out what are the things that are meaningful to you? Does, does it have to be a leap of something that you haven't done historically? Let's take, let's take the dinner example because this is, this is a really good one. So what, what do you, what do you two do when you sit down to eat together? Well, I guess there's a few different things. It depends. Sometimes we sit down at and you know at the table in the kitchen and we just eat and and yeah. talk yeah um sometimes we just feel like watching a show while we eat and so we bring yes. it into the living room and eat at the couch delicious um yeah i have no shame guilty pleasure oh, love God, it no you no, know and, get our shows in absolutely and and that's important to say that like 
not everything all the time is going to be ritualized. Right, right? that sounds like, exhausting. Oh my God, no, impossible. And and even like looking back at tradition, there's a reason why you have some feast days and like the rest of the days are normal, right? Like you you you, you need that balance of special time and normal time. That, mm-hmm. that is 100% true. But I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, do you ever kind of clink your glasses and, you know, maybe... Well, actually, yeah, we, we always cheers our, our forks. I love that. We always, I don't know what, we just started doing that and it stuck a long time so ago. T- t- tell me more. What, hap- what happens when you clink your forks? It's just like before either of us can take a bite, we have to like clink our forks. And if I take a bite before clinking her fork, Uh-oh. she's like, <clears throat> she's and like holding her yeah. fork up. Yeah. So, so what could you say in that moment that makes visible the invisible thing that's already happening? Like how, how can you make the implicit explicit in that moment? I don't know. Is, is clinking the fork not enough? Is that not the the thing in itself? It 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 totally could be. It totally could be. I'm I'm curious, like what the right? There's there's something special that's happening there. Like it's between the two of you. It's acknowledging, right? Like maybe someone has made the food. Right? We're going to start this together. I'm not going to stop before you. Mm-hmm. But so it, it it seems to me that there's that there's something being said in the physical action. That, that could be emphasized with words. Now, it might be that mm. not having words is the right thing for you both. Um, but like even, even just doing the clinking of the forks uh, consciously is like, okay, this is the ritual I have with my wife. Like when, when the two of us together, soon you're going to have a little one with you. Maybe mm-hmm. clinking of the forks is going to be something you do when you eat together with the three of you, right? Like, and suddenly mm-hmm. it adds this whole layer of, 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 of sweetness because you're, you're mm-hmm. sharing it. So the, the, it's those moments that I'm most interested in and, and to say like, that's important because your mm-hmm. little one, as he or she or they grow up, what they're going to remember from mealtimes is that you clink your fork before you eat. The right? Sphinx like, clinks. The Sphinx clinks. Oh my God, I'm dying. Yes. <laughs> Like that, I mean, that's, Done. that's beautiful, right? Like that's mm-hmm. going to be the thing that helps them feel connected. Like, right. and you and, will grow and, old. And I guess, and I guess what you're saying is us doing that. It is kind of saying like, I'm grateful to be eating with you. It's yes. like, that's why we do it before yes. we eat. And it's, it's an acknowledgement it, that we're eating together. And exactly. so you can be more explicit about that. Um, if you want it to be. Even, even if you don't say it out loud, you knowing that the Sphinx clinks, makes you as a family who you are like it's one of the things that makes you you and not us right like that that is a special beautiful thing right like it's mm. it's identity forming it makes it gives me a sense of home right and like when when your little one goes off to college like and they you know fall in love or whatever happens right they're going to share their sphinx clinks and bring that person home they're going to mm. know how to do that with you before you eat like that's a huge entry ritual into the family, you know? And then uh, and then they'll go to someone else's house and try to click their forks exactly. and they'll look at them like they're really weird. And I'd be like, that's right. You're my it's child. A, it's an especial elite team. Yeah, exactly. Not everyone does this. Absolutely. Like the, the and and I think the thing that I want that I want you to feel is like that's not just a silly little thing. It's a really beautiful tradition that for me, holds spiritual meaning, right? It says that we are a family. We care for one another. We mm. respect each other. We appreciate each other. Um, and it's just a little fork clink, but it, it's so much more than that when we see it for its for its totality. Hmm. That's a really f- useful way of thinking about how to kind of bring that meaning or bring more meaning into the rituals yeah. in your own life. Now, what about kind of uh, bringing that to others from, from a community perspective? Yeah. And, and thinking about religion... 
um, in being, I think part of the value of religion has also always been that, um, it's someone else mm. kind of guiding you. And mm-hmm. so you don't have to worry about making the decisions or figuring out the rituals. You're not, you know, even interpreting it necessarily. Right. It's kind of being guided in the same way that if I try to do yoga, I'm going to do it for 10 minutes. I'm going to half ass it. But if I go to a class and someone else tells me what to do, I'm going yes. to do it fully and really be immersed in it. Yes. Um, and so I think that's a huge part of the value of religion. And you know that, you know, services are in the same day every week and it's going to follow the same format. And, um, right. these kinds of things are like the decision's not there. It's just becoming a habit that's and right. it's done for me. So, um, for community builders, uh, yes. who a lot of people who will listen to this podcast are, what are the things that they can do to create more meaningful rituals for their members in their community? Absolutely. Well, what you just described so beautifully was the idea of like creating a container, right? We're creating a social container, a set of rules of how we behave here that's different from how we behave out there. So during the yoga class, I'm going to follow you as you instruct me. Uh, uh, I wouldn't do that, you know, in in how I go grocery shopping. But in this context, I am going to I'm going to follow you as you guide me. So in a community context, it's really helpful to think about, okay, what are the values that we want to represent? What, What do we stand for? Um, and hopefully, you know, most community leaders will be pretty fluent in in knowing what 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 they're about. And then how do we give that physical shape? And nearly always, there's already things that you do as a community that do that. It might be about, you know, we celebrate, you know, uh, Friendsgiving uh, at the office or we, or we do a special Fourth of July holiday picnic or we do a, you know, th- there's all sorts of moments in the calendar which are probably already set aside for those kind of bigger celebrations. Um, and one of the things I'd love to do is to help people just map out a calendar of when those moments are. And and you should hopefully have, you know, at least once a month something um, that, that's in your sort of ritual community life. You know, it might be, oh, usually around this time, someone organizes like an amazing bake-off competition, right? Like who can create the best cake? Wh- whatever it is, um, there there are moments throughout the year that are already waiting to be uncovered and and kind of given a little bit more heft and structure probably to lift them up as, as meaningful. But then there's also, do you find that rituals always come up organically or can they be intentionally created by a community organizer? It is always better to build on something that's there organic. Look for the things that people are already doing. I mean, again, I'll just bring up the Pinterest example. You know, we, we are walking around their current offices to understand how people are actually already making ritual in space. So it turns out the IT team has this amazing tradition of Friday night drinks. Uh, and they, 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 someone created a neon sign with a name for, for this, this kind of little drinking group that gets together on a Friday night. Well, that's an amazing kind of latent ritual that could be massively made more official. So like, why not make the cafe bar area in the new office named after the same thing, right? So, so you've kind of given something that was organic form, structure, solidity, mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it's authentic. It's real. It's from the people. It's actually there. Um, so the same thing is, to, is definitely true for community rituals, but then there's also smaller things, you know, um, which might be how do people celebrate birthdays, right? That's a really obvious place to start. How do we celebrate anniversaries? How do we, how do we say goodbye when someone leaves? You know, is that something that kind of just happens hush hush and maybe there's cupcakes or do we create a slideshow where we honor all of that person's contributions and mm. tell the story of times when, uh, that they, you know, they were massively influential for us. Um, do so we, that, that, that does seem like an interesting way that you can facilitate it as an organizer is, you know, you're oh, going to yeah. have at least 
Oh, yeah. In theory, two touch points. You're going to have an onboarding <laughs> and an offboarding. Absolutely. Um, and those are two things that everyone is going to go through. Definitely the onboarding, eventually probably the offboarding. Right. Um, and, and so do you think that's a point that as a community organizer, you can try to Absolutely. think about like what is the, the ritual that everyone goes through? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, or, you know, when when we celebrate a project or when we, um, you know, even if something has failed massively, what do we do to like reset? Right. When when uh, not just like what did we learn from it, but like really make space for us to like just be sad for half an hour together and say what's happened. Hmm. What about when a school shooting happens in your neighborhood or what happens? Right. Like th these are all moments that are that are real experiences that to some extent, um people are going to feel it either way. So you can either make space for it with some sort of ritual activity, or people are going to suppress it and talk about it, you know, on a Slack channel, which isn't shared with everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So like it, it, it's, it's a healthy way, I think of maintaining community, uh, not just morale, but the values of the community. When, when something happens that demands our attention as a community, that we, that we make space for it, that we give it shape and point it back to the things that we all hold, you could say sacred. I guess an interesting question comes to mind is like, does community create ritual or does ritual create community? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, even, even as human beings, we, we danced before we spoke together. We sang, we, 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 we did ritual behaviors before we even had language. So my sense is if I was being bold, that, that kind of ritual com creates community, right? It's the patterns of behavior. It's the way in which we know how to orient one us, ourselves with one another that, that gives us a sense of, of safety and uh, mm. a sense of belonging. Um, so I, I think if you have a, if you do your kind of little ritual analysis and you see that there's not a lot, first of all, try looking again, because there's probably more than you think. But if, if there isn't a strong ritual life in the community, it's probably not a very strong community. Right. Yeah. That, that was kind of what I was wondering is if you're a community builder, maybe it's still an early stage of the community or, you know, you're just not seeing kind of engagement there. Yeah. Um, and you're not seeing the rituals form organically. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can always start with you, right? You can always start with you and the three people sitting around you. Um, you know, just think about how maybe you have a favorite food and on your birthday, you start bringing in your favorite food to share with everyone. Um, and that just maybe just becomes a little bit of a norm. And next time Janet and, you know, Sophia do it, I don't know, who, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, you start to see those things happen. So mm -hmm. for something to feel authentic, you obviously want to, you want to start with your own expression of it rather than just mm -hmm. kind of imposing it on everyone else. Um, but again, look, look a second time because there are people are human and human people are meaning makers. Like that's just what we do. We tell mm -hmm. stories, we make meaning. So rituals are happening. Uh, mm. It's just about, are we conscious of them? Do we make space mm. for them? How yeah. And it's almost like grow? ritual is almost uh, as well, kind of a, a measure of community success in Absolutely. a way. It's like, if you see rituals forming, there's Absolutely. a good chance you have a good sense of community going. Whereas if Absolutely. you don't, maybe you need to keep experimenting with who you're bringing together, how you're bringing them together, what the format is of those experiences until you start to see those kind of rituals yeah. form. Um, yeah, absolutely. Are, are there any other elements from religion that um, we should aim to create in our community? I think the thing that I might, uh, I might invite us to think about, especially, and you mentioned this with the grand, is a sense of intergenerational connection. 
Um, congregations are one of the few places today where it's easy to form intergenerational friendships. Um, and that's kind of disappeared from, from mainstream life. So if you're able to help bring people into relationship uh, across generational cohort, and often it's nice to help people know what to do rather than just saying like, be friends, bye, right? Like give people a shared task, invite them to make something together, invite them to tell specific stories to one another, um, give them responsibilities for one another. Um, that, that there are wonderful, wonderful intergenerational friendships that are, that are safe and generous that can emerge, I think, in community life that so many of us are looking for. And it might be about, hey, what do I do as, you know, new parents? Or it might be, hey, I need, uh, you know, I need an extra pair of hands to you know, who can lift a sofa. I, I, who knows what it, what it will lead to. Um, but I think it's one of the ways in which we start to re understand our own life when we see it through the eyes of someone who's older, because it takes away a lot of the intensity and, and, you know, stress and shame that we feel either of the, the things that we feel we have to do or the mistakes that we feel we've made when we give it a longer historical context. And we see that, you know, our lives are both uh, as meaningful as, as the whole world, right? But they're also as small as a, as a tiny speck of sand on a, an enormous beach. And so it, those friendships can really contextualize and, and make, us, um, make us remember that what's really important. Love it. And I, I would say a corollary there on communities is there's intergenerational. There's also just the idea of connecting, you know, the, the longstanding members in your community with yeah, new members beautiful. and making sure that those connections are being formed because they often don't happen organically and can even be siloed. Yes. Um, so connecting the, those with experience with those who have less experience is really, really powerful. Love that, David. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, awesome. All right. So we're going to finish up with some rapid fire questions. All right. Ready? Dum, 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 dum. Yep. Yeah. All right. Hit me up. I asked them rapidly, but not everyone can answer them rapidly. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, first question, how do you define community? Uh, community is a place where you are truly known and truly loved. You just had an answer ready for that. Boom. Well practiced. Love it. Where you're truly known and truly loved. I like it. You know, some communities are on the road there, but that's the real feeling of I belong here. Yeah. All, de all definitions of community are some sort of ideal. All right. Um, is there a person that you really look up to in, in terms of community or oh religion? Oh, my God. So many people. Um, you got to choose one. You're only allowed. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can I choose was, a couple. You choose as I, many I as you want. Scott Heiferman, who set up meetup.com, mm, is just someone great. who... Com continually inspires me both with his commitment to you know IRL community but also someone who's just um just such a loving presence in the world like mm. I, I you know you meet you meet your heroes and sometimes you wish you didn't he's someone I just I, I respect enormously and, and love deeply another one is a professor of mine a woman called Stephanie Paulsell um who is the the current minister at Memorial Church at Harvard University the the, the big community church she just opened the door for me in so many ways to to think about religion differently from how i thought about it before um and has written some wonderful books um if you're a fan of virginia wolf she's written a wonderful book thinking about virginia wolf who's a famous atheist um but as a religious figure in this really really interesting way and uh, you can hear her preach as well uh on the, on soundcloud <laughs> love it awesome um, this one I, I borrow from uh, Lewis Howes, who has an awesome podcast as well. Um, so say you're, you're reaching the end of your life and mm. all of your lessons, all of the things you've learned about religion, about community building, about belonging, mm. 
everything, you can only leave one tweet-sized message, <laughs> you know, roughly, uh, that kind of condenses your message, your advice to the world, mm. what would that be? Uh, how about hanging in my kitchen? Life is about the people you meet and the things you create with them. Mm. Why is that your advice? I just, I, I it's true. <laughs> it's true. I, when I think about the things that have meant most to me, it's that the people I've loved, the people I've created things with that I feel most, um, that's what made it worth it. Mm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Awesome. Uh, Casper, this was amazing. Um, we could talk all day. I know we can, but we have to stop. Yes. We yeah. must stop. People have other <laughs> things to do today. It's so, um, where can people find you? Where can they continue to learn from you? Um, and where can they find your book? Yeah, thanks. It's called The Power of Ritual. You can uh, pre-order it now. It's at powerofritual.org. Um, and uh, you can learn more about my work at sacred.design, where my colleagues and I at Sacred Design Lab uh, have our online spiel. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at TK. Awesome. I highly recommend you all do that. And we'll include those links in the show notes. Uh, make sure to pick up the book. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yep, I just wanted to thank you for being on the show. And, I mean, every time I chat with you, you are just one of the most positive, uh, thoughtful, well-spoken people mm. uh, that I've ever met. Um, you care deeply about your work. You're extremely passionate about it, and it shines through mm. every time. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your learnings. Uh, you're just a really special person, Casper, and I'm really grateful oh. for you, and, and thank you for sharing all your wisdom and all your lessons with us on the podcast. Oh man, that's, that's very sweet. Thank you, David. Well, I feel, I feel the same way. And, uh, I want, if I had a fork right now, I'd be doing a little sphinx. Oh, I don't know. My wife might not. <laughs> is that cheating? I'm not sure. That's All a right, clink thanks, cheat. Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's, it was a pleasure. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. We'll see you next time.